Thank you for being with us today. We would love to have you join us in person. To partner with us or to give online, go to www.upperroomohio.com. We hope you enjoy this message. We started, if, this, if you've not been here for a few weeks, we started this in November. It is our longest series in history. Um, I think it's still good. But what we did was we had this, I had a vision of just every, like what would it look like in our world? What would it look like in the kingdom if every table, so we started there, every table uh, was a revival. Every house, every church, and every community actually experienced revival. What does that look like, and, and, and how impactful would that be? But it starts small. It's smart. It starts in our heart. It starts in our marriage. It starts in our home. Then it trickles out from there into our workplace or our church. And, and then we get to experience worship the way we did this morning because we're cultivating that as a lifestyle in our home, in our family, in our marriage, in my daily life. So then at, corporately, then we get to walk in that blessing because of what's being cultivated in the week in our hearts. So then what does that look like? It probably won't translate to this and yelling in our board meetings at work, all right? But what does that translate to to look like revival in, in, the, in the communities then? What does it look like to actually look like Jesus at the school board meeting or your business meeting? Or, or what does that look like in the hospital as you serve as a nurse or your classroom as a teacher? It may not look like this, but revival looks like something where you are. It looks like honor. It looks like love. It looks like power. It looks like joy. You know, what does it look like as your kids enter into that classroom each day? All of a sudden, they step into an atmosphere of joy and peace and comfort and love because that's what you have cultivating in the other areas of your life. Instead of chaos and fear and, 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 and just jealousy and those things. Listen, when people come around you, they feel that. You know, you're, you're, you're called to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. You're called to change the atmospheres. So, so as we started this, we talked about the creativity of Solomon at the table and how, how that led to the Queen of Sheba literally changing a nation because of what she experienced in honor and love and riches and blessing and creativity. And then we get to the home, we get to the house, and, and, and what does it look like when Obed-Edom he, he hosted the Ark of the Covenant. He hosted the presence for three months. And if you look in the scripture, it says, then his whole house and forevermore basically was blessed. So, so what does this look like? And we went through the Christmas story through it. And, and then, but then I, I come to, to this week and I'm leaning into this message that I had prepared a few weeks ago where presence just took over and we went a different route. So I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, okay, we'll delete that. All right, we'll change that. And then I have this thought, like, how am I ever going to top Micah's message on ecclesia? How am I going to measure up to that? That was so good. The ecclesia being called from something to something. It's not the walls. It's the people, you know. Just this incredible word of what the church is supposed to be, family. That was my message. So I'm like, all right, Lord, what are we going to do here? So Friday and Saturday, I'm, I'm, I'm still at it. And so I, I just really think I'm going to give you a glimpse of what church as a structure or as a purpose should be. He, he, he defined what, I'm defining the how, okay? I, I think he even gave a good why, all right? So we know why we're here. We know what we're supposed to do. But now how do we do that? And what does the structure, what does the practicality of the church look like? And I'll just be honest with you, I'm going to pull a lot from Scripture, but I'm also going to pull a lot from concept that from the early days of the temple, what the temple was set up for wasn't so that we can introduce a new program or focus on people or have a great presentation. It was to literally host the presence. The concept of what the New Testament church wasn't, again, to produce a new program. Listen, I, I think what's happened in the history of the last couple decades of American church is we have become program-driven. Am I too loud? Okay. Feels like I am, but I think I might just be in the monitors these days. So we've become program-driven. So, so what's happened is we're wired to think that the church is actually there for us when the church was never built to be there for the people. Now, now let, me, let, me, let me reiterate, let me, let me rephrase how I'm saying that. It was never meant to simply meet the needs of the people. The church wasn't in existence to just take care of the poor. The church wasn't, wasn't implemented and, and formed a community of believers just so that we could, we could take care of all these needs in our community. 
Listen, the church was simply built in the tabernacle, in the temple. It was simply created so that we could plant Jesus in the center. We could host his presence. We gather around that, and then we present ourselves as a living sacrifice on the altar of worship, and we literally just worship him. It didn't change when it went to Acts 2. It didn't change when it went through the, the church of Corinth, the church of Ephesus, the, 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 all these other churches that, that Paul was really overseeing and communicating with. It never changed. The simple thing is that we, we changed it. And, and if you look at history, the revivalist, listen, I, I'll say it later when we're talking about, when we're talking about the in. Listen, I am so opposed to organized religion. I'm going to mess with you a little bit. I, I'm so opposed to organized religion when it becomes about the religion rather than the relationship. I'm opposed to organized religion when, when they deviate from the whole heart of why the movement was even birthed. God birthed movements, not religions. God birthed movements, not, not, not groups of people gathering around just to study doctrine and theology. He birthed movements to worship the king of kings. He birthed movements to place fireballs in all these communities and areas and groups of people so that they could actually live out what the word of God is saying. Listen, what's happened is we've become in a sense of worshiping the man-made systems and structures rather than the one who created them. So, so if you look back to the Methodist church and John Wesley, he was a fire-breathing, tongue-talking, Holy Ghost-filled revivalist that birthed a movement that then has now formed into other things in some sectors. We can go back to every denomination. So I am opposed to organized religion, but I'm not opposed to getting organized around the presence of Jesus and worshiping him as a family. I'm not opposed to actually getting back to the heart of what Azusa Street was for. It wasn't there to birth denominations. It was there to birth movements that continually move and go forward to spread the kingdom of God. So when we go back to the original context of the temple and we go back, it wasn't about programs. We have become so program-oriented where we have to entertain people to get them into a church. And then we have to entertain them to keep them to stay. And if the presentation isn't good enough, then all of a sudden we don't have enough, enough momentum, enough, uh, we're not relevant, and, you know, all these tag words in Christianity that we hear. Listen, sometimes we, we need to move beyond the comfort zone, and we actually don't gather around the doctrine. We don't gather around the theology. We gather around him. Jesus himself is perfect doctrine. Jesus himself alone is perfect theology. He was the best theologian that ever lived. Jesus was the most ideal Christian that ever lived. So, so what we need to do is we actually build a church around planting him. We, 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 we build a home group. We build a life group. We build a Bible study about planting him in the center. And then we form our lives, our community, and, and, and our things around that. Now, I'm not opposed to programs, but when we begin to put the program before the presence, there's an issue. I'm not a, a, against seeking out people and reaching people. That's, that's the gospel moving forward. But I'm against seeking people before we seek his presence. I'm not against presentations, but when we think the presentation is going to be the one that wins the people, then we've got an issue. It's God himself that's going to reach the people. So, so today I'm, I'm going to talk about structures and talk about, we're going to start in Ephesians 4 and talk about the structure of the church. This is after it's going through the gifts of the people. All right, there, there's gifts, and, and then it says the gifts of the church, and it talks about what's been gifted us to the church and what our role is. So let's go to Ephesians 4.11. I'm going to need to hydrate a little bit more today. Two dances, lots of sweating. By the way, um, I'm going to announce this publicly for some accountability. I'm down 16 of the 50 pounds I want to lose this year. <laughs> Feeling good? On a lifestyle change, it's not a diet. Don't call it a diet. People get offended when you say they're on a diet. I was talking to somebody last week. They're like, oh, it's not a diet. I'm not on a diet. I'm on a flipping diet, all right? And I just hope it lasts long enough to call it a lifestyle, okay? All right. Ephesians 4. Let's go there. I'm going to pull out some things even from last week and uh, poke the bear a little bit. <laughs> now, these are the gifts Christ gave the church. Everybody say church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Now, now listen. Again, we've, we've looked at the church to meet all of our needs, to sing in our key, to have the program for my child, 
and to feed me if I'm hungry, and to pay my electric bill, all, all these things. And now I'm going to position you and challenge you a little bit, because when I first kind of saw this and the Lord was pointing this out, that actually that's not the church's responsibility. It's not the organization's church, the, the, the covering of what we call upper room's responsibility. It's the people within the church's responsibility to meet those needs. Let, let me continue. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church and the body of Christ. The responsibility of the church, the responsibility of the leadership of the church is to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. Okay, let me, let me get to this word equip. It comes from the Greek word katartismos, uh, okay, katarismos, okay, and it's, if, you, if I pronounce that wrong, you can look it up. It's Strong's Concordance number 2677. Anyway, it's making fit, preparing, training, perfecting, making fully qualified for service, all right, and another definition is to make whole to a discovered function, okay, to make whole to be put out for a discovered function. So, so here's the thing. We, we've, we've, we've positioned the church, especially in America. I get to go around the world and see some pretty cool things. In America, it really feels like we begin to worship the, the church rather than worship the God who was the heart behind the church. So we begin to then rely on the church to meet my needs. We rely on the church to teach my kids the Bible. We rely on the church to feed me and rely on the church to make me feel good every Sunday and that I leave encouraged and feeling good about myself, right? But here's the role of the church is actually to equip you to do all of that. The role of the church is actually to challenge you to provide a, a, a family, an environment, an ecclesia, with, with the environment Josh was talking about, that, that actually equips you to get hungry in your word, to get whole, to be saved, healed, and delivered. Now, the church can't save you as much as you want us to save you. We can't save you. As much as you want us to deliver you, we can't deliver you. We can't heal you. We can't call you out of your sin. But we can challenge you enough to lead you to the Messiah who can. Not only can, wants to, and does. That's the church's role, to challenge you, to poke you enough. to, to ch- now, now, last week may have been one of the most controversial messages that's ever been spoken up a room. <laughs> All right? And, and let me just tell you, there, there was things that were flying. There was, I, I, there was things about what the, enem- what the enemy and God said in the garden. There was things about baptism. There was things about Jesus breaking the law, which the heart behind it was the law of man, not the law of God. But see, what's happened is Jamie did what his role and one of his giftings is. He equips the believers to call them into purity to be equipped to actually discover what their calling is. Now, now let, me, let me just say that. Some of you teachers in here would have been really challenged last week if you were here. Because all of a sudden, he's saying things that we may not have heard before. He's saying things that I might not even agree with. But what he's happened is, how many after last week's messages had some form of a conversation with somebody about it? He did his job in the sense of the apostle, okay, and and actually Jamie's a prophet, all right? And if you've ever been around a prophet, they are weird dudes. They stretch you. They poke bears. They don't care about offending people, all right? But what happened was he did his work as far as what the definition says. He challenged you to equip you so that you get hungry enough to get in your word and search out if it's truth or not. He challenged you to have conversations beyond a Sunday morning. The other thing is he induced a hunger here for baptism, a hunger here to get in our word, a hunger for truth. Right? It doesn't mean I have to agree with him on everything he said, but that's what the product was. That's the role of the church, to actually um, provoke you enough to go deeper on your own so that you're equipped for the work of your ministry. Now, now listen, I didn't train Matt Buer, and I didn't have a, a, a class with him, and we didn't have a, a graduation so that he could get a dream in the middle of the night to have four semis that get delivered to Houston, Texas. But he was equipped to believe in himself, and he was equipped to have the faith to believe the resources would come and the community would gather around something to deliver four semi-trucks to Houston after the hurricane and flood. Yeah. 
Now, what the church did was we breathed on it. We stoked that fire. I encouraged Matt. Matt, that is an amazing. He called me the next morning. Matt, amazing. Go for it. We're going to partner with you. We provided volunteers. We provided some resources. Micah went with him to deliver it. Now, what happens is when God births something in you, a passion, a frustration, something like that, he's probably calling you to something. When God births a passion in you for prostitution and, and just an anger in it, an anger in abuse, an anger for addiction, maybe an anger with divorce, all of a sudden what's happening is God is provoking you and calling you out of something, ecclesia, and into your calling. So then the church's role in that is to fan that flame. Fan that flame and then give you resources, line you up with people. And, and, if, and if it needs finances, we figure out if, we, if we're partnering in this in that way. That's the church's role. But it's you who are birthing the ideas. We're equipping you to do what? The work of the ministry. All right, let's, I got to keep going here. Verse 13, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of who? Not the standard of Pastor Aaron. Trust me, you don't want to compare yourself to me. You might fall short. Let me clarify. I'm not all that high to measure up to. You may fall short of where your true destiny actually is. All right? God did not bring the brightest tool and put him up here, all right? God did not bring the most handsome, okay, and not the most athletic, okay? But what what God did do is bring somebody who has heart and passion and a story and somebody who believes in the God that actually transformed me. That's what I got going for me. So if you're wanting to, to study out and go to seminary and study out doctrine and theology, don't compare yourself to me, all right? I will, I will mess with you and... Uh, Oh, wow. It's good if you want to. I'm just saying, don't compare yourself to me. All right. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about to every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us or lies to clever that sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like who? Christ. Who is, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing full in what? Love. The church is supposed to look like love. There's this verse in this, this nature of God I know about, and it's called God is what? Love. We're actually supposed to reflect God in love. Now, here's the other thing. Each one of you are called for a special gift, a special anointing, a special calling. And and here's the thing. When you know yourself and you know who you are and you know whose you are, now all of a sudden you're not afraid to take that risk. You're not afraid to, but you have to do your part. I'm going to share two stories. One is our girls, um, they are currently 10, 7, 6, and 3. Did I get that right? Yes. All right. They're all getting ready to have birthdays in the next, well, two are getting ready to have birthdays in the next couple months. Yes, like I said, 10, 8, 7, 3. What's funny is uh, she agreed with me at first, which means she's probably texting Rachel making fun of something about me. So I tease her all the time. Like, she's already heard this once this morning. I'm like, Nicole, come on, man. I need some feedback. I thrive on affirmation. What was your favorite part about the second sermon? It was all good. Come on. (laughs) Pay attention. Quit the Instagram while I'm preaching. (laughs) Anyway, each one of our daughters, the oldest three, have a role in our home. At dinner time, one sets the table, one clears the table off, puts the dishes at the sink, and then the third one, the role that, and these all rotate, is put the dishes into the dishwasher. So they have to rinse them, put them in the dishwasher. That's the rule. We eat at the dinner table about at least four times a week, and it's kind of a routine that they like, I like. And then Nicole's role is typically to cook the food, and my role is typically to eat the food. It is a perfect team, let me tell you. It works out amazing. But anyway, here's the thing. In the body, you're supposed to play your part. You're supposed to be what God called you. And if he called you to be a hand, you have to be a hand. Why? Because it looks funny when we try to slap somebody with just one hand. No, I'm just kidding. 
If you're called to be a head, if you're called to be a foot, a, a voice, that, that's your role. And, and if you're not here, we're missing that role. Or if you're not functioning in that role, we're missing part of our body. We're missing part of our family. We're missing part of our bride. So, so here's what happens. Sometimes the girls all ask to be excused when we're done with our conversations. And I'm like, yeah, you can be excused. And, and I typically don't know whose role is what until we get to the end of dinner. Because then all of a sudden we've all carried our plates over, but like the ketchups and all that stuff's still out. And I'm like, hey, who's, 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 clean the t- who's clear the table? And I got to go to the chore chart. I'm like, oh, Chloe's clear the table. Okay, well, Chloe, Chloe, you, you forgot your job. We can't move on. We can't do the full destiny of the dishes in the dishwasher until you fulfill your part. Are you tracking with me? When you're missing, we can't do the overall picture, and that is to clean up the table so we can have fun and have a dance party or play with baby dolls or whatever it is we're going to do that night. We can't do that until this part's done, and if one person didn't do their job, we can't move forward. That's the body, and that's what our job is to equip you for that. Your job is to actually step out and do it. And it might be in the church, it might be out of the church, it might be in your classroom, it might be in in your hospital, it might be in your family. Like God might be positioning you right now that one of your greatest gifts, one of your greatest anointings may not be a revivalist, it may not be an evangelist doing crusades all over the earth. It may not be a prophet calling people out by name and birth date and and social security number, but maybe your greatest gift is being a mom. Maybe one of your greatest gifts is being a dad, taking your daughters to the father-daughter dance. Maybe one of your greatest gifts is now you get to be a grandparent and just have fun with the grandkids, and when they get too much sugar, you get to send them back with mom and dad. Maybe one of your greatest gifts is just pouring the love of Jesus into the person that you work next to in a cubicle. Maybe that's one of the things that God is giving you to steward. It may not be the the way that we think of prophet, apostle, teacher, pastor. It might be that you're that apostle in that workplace. You might be that prophet in that home. Like that might be your role. And sometimes we worship these people and we put them up here and and then we try to emulate our life. When God designed you to be you because everybody else is taken. God designed you with your special gifts. Listen, the difference between the guys who buried the talents, mediocrely did anything with them, and the guy that invested it is the guys who knew their identity and they knew God. We had this conversation. It was awesome. I loved it. It was Friday at our pastor's meeting. So, so we're having this conversation. And the difference, and Steve was kind of bringing this to our attention, the difference between the guy who buried them and the guy who invested them and took that risk is identity and knowing the grace and love of a father. Listen, let let me explain. The guy who buried him was fearful that God would be displeased with him and would judge him and be angry. The guy who took the risk and invested it all and returned the most is the guy that said, I know that even if I lose them all, my father's still going to love me. If If I risk this and lose it all, I'm still a son of the most high king, and Jesus loves me. Listen, God is asking you to take that risk and that we can equip you, but it's you that steps out of that boat and walks on that water. Let's, let's move on here. Okay, here's a few things. The family, I'm not going to touch much on family, even though that would be my heart of this message, that a church should actually look like family, operate like family, be like family, where we actually love each other where we don't let anybody talk about us behind our back. We don't even entertain a conversation that might be slightly, even a little bit, itty bitty 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 it, negative about anything or buddy in our life, our realm, the world, our church, doesn't matter. Why? Because we are carriers of light. And there's death and life in the power of the tongue. It says, although a small member of your body, a forest fire, it can produce. Listen, that's your tongue. Your tongue, it says that your mouth is a reflection of your heart. It's a mirrored image. So so if we're having a problem not being family and not edifying and lifting one another up, it's probably because our heart has some darkness in it. Why? Because if it was life coming out, that meant there was life coming from my heart. If there's darkness coming out, there's probably something in there that there's death. Okay, let, let me get on to what the believers are supposed to be doing in the atmosphere of family, being a bride called a church and hosting his presence. I'm going to read through these really fast. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. This is Paul. He's, 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 uh, there's several instances here that I'm going to read about Paul commissioning the church, instructing the church of who and how to be. All right, and it says this, let us think of the ways to motivate one another 
to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our what? Meeting together. Let us not neglect hanging out together, doing life together, meeting on Sundays, being a corporate body, meeting in our house churches to to be an expression to go deeper. It says, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is closer. Now listen, what, isn't that amazing? How many believe we're closer today to God's return than we were yesterday? How many believe that we're closer today than when this was written about 2,000 years ago? Absolutely. So how many think it's more important now than ever, especially in our negative climate? When you turn on the news, there is very, very little good news on the major news networks. It is a bad negative news environment. Why? Because negativity sells. Sex, drugs, violence, and negativity sells. And any story they can get in that way, more people will watch. That's the environment we live to. But so more than now, we need to be encouragers. We need to be lovers. We need to be motivators. We need to be the cheerleaders next to our brothers and sisters, not only sharpening their iron, but actually rooting them on and helping him. Beautiful story that I've heard the last two weeks. How many know Jay? Jay Wave. How many have had Jay share a poem with you? Look at that. Look at the lives you're touching. So, so here's the thing. Jay has been writing poems since he got saved. And uh, about a decade now, right? You've been writing these awesome poems. And... So what's happened is now, now Zach, Rasnick, wave Zach, they had dinner. Zach is now going to help Jay. He's typing out his poems, putting it in almost a devotional form to get a book out for Jay that we've been encouraging Jay to do for about two or three years now. It wasn't just a couple weeks ago we told Jay, Jay, you're going to need to start typing these out. Now, as I replay this conversation in my head, I'm thinking Jay may not be the best typist. No? Okay, no. So, but what's happened is now he has somebody advocating for him, cheering him up, motivating him, and carrying the skill set that needs to help Jay bring his dreams alive, but yet then he's being used for it. That is the work of the ministry in the context of church of loving one another. We're cheerleading each other. You should do that business. Yeah, we're a dream culture so you can fulfill your destinies. All right, let me move on because for the sake of time, Romans 12, 10 through 13. Paul says, love each other with genuine affection. Now, come on. We can typically tell if you really love one another or you don't. How many know you feel that? Let me give you an example. Okay. Hey, how, how you doing? Good, good. You? Yep, yep, good. That is not genuine affection. That is the, the superficial passing of by, acknowledging each other, and yep, we've done our duty. Checkbox. I'm on to my groceries now. Okay, genuine affection. Like, how are you? I'm, I'm, my eyes are engaged. I'm, I'm in tune right now. Nicole, how was your day with the kids? It was good? Yeah, good. Okay, good. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Say what? Oh, Hadassah puked on you. Oh, that's terrible. Hadassah did what? You know, that's not genuine affection. The Bible also says be interested in the lives of others. That's engaged. That means all of my attention is on you right now if you're in a conversation with me. It's not squirrel moment. It's, it's like get it done moment. I'm, I'm engaged here. My heart's connected to your heart because I care about you. So, so then it goes on to say, and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord what? Enthusiastically. Woo, woo. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. These are good instructions. All right? Keep these to heart. Write these down. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, is, is Paul writing this letter to the people of the church, or is he writing it to the leadership and the head and the organizational structure of the church? The people. He's saying, do this, guys. Come on. Do this. So he says, when people are in need, meet their needs. Um, Jake Hamilton told me this amazing story. I have time to, to, to focus on this for a minute. He told me this amazing story. If you don't know Jake Hamilton, he's a worship leader. We've had him here several times. He's a dear friend. Matter of fact, just texted me last night. Dear friend of mine. He's got a daughter who is uh, handicapped and, and wheelchair-bound, and um, his oldest child. She's adorable. She's sweet. She was here the last time they came. And um, so anyway, he was, he was at a meeting with Perry Stone. How many have heard of Perry Stone? Dear 
brilliant man of God. Just his, his translation of the scripture and word, and it's, it's really cool. Anyway, he was with a meeting with him, and, and Perry was intent, being intentional, honoring Jake, how's your daughter? Well, we have one more surgery to do. We're hopeful that this may give her the strength to walk again and, and, uh, and stuff like this. Okay, what's your financial need in it? Uh, well, we're raising funds, but we're, we've got a good start. And he's like, well, how much money do you need? Well, you know, Perry, God's going to provide. How much money do you need? I need $16,000. All right, Jake, I'm writing you a check for $16,000. It went around the table. All of a sudden, others begin to pitch in and say, hey, you're going to need some time off of ministry. You're going to need to spend time with your family. There's travel expenses. We're going to do this. Jake's moved into tears. He says, Perry, you don't have to do this. I didn't tell my story. I didn't say I needed money. I, didn't, I was only answering your questions. I, I, I didn't want any of this. He's like, it would be wrong of me. This is the heart of what the church is. It would be wrong of me to have what a brother needs and not give it to him. It would be wrong of me. I would be in sin. He literally called us in. He's like, I would be sinful. I would be in sin if you had a need as a brother and I didn't help make that need when I had the means and the provisions to do so. That's the picture. That is the beauty of church. That is. And they don't go to the same building. They're in the same church. Are you with me? Now, now let me continue on here. Did I finish that one? Yeah, yeah, I did. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the message about Christ and all his riches fill your lives. Everybody say lives. Plural. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. He's saying, meet together, encourage one another, and then do some praise and worship and glorify him. That's, that's what he's saying. That's the Sunday expression. That's one thing you can't get anywhere else is worshiping the King of Kings in a powerful, glory-infused environment, all right, with like-minded, like-hearted people just going after his presence, I can worship intimately. I can have that alone time of worship with God. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking the power of that away. But there's one thing that the body is supposed to be doing, and that's meeting together to just glorify, worship, and praise Jesus. Last one here, Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's family, his household. Now, now, now come on. You're no longer foreigners or strangers, but now you're members. You're part of this body. You're part of God's household. This is his family. Listen, we don't have formal leader membership here. We don't, we don't have a, a contractual membership. But what we encourage is there is a wall out there in what we call the coffee area. It's the room off, to the, off the circle room, and it's got nice, cool blue chairs, and it's got this wall. And it's, it's, it's all these pegs with pictures and stuff. And what we encourage is when you want to call Upper Room home, you simply, when you want to be a member here, you simply put a stake in the ground. And, and, and that version that we have for that is when you're making this home and putting a stake in the ground is you take your family photo of those living in your household and you clip it to that board and above it, it says home, covenant, family. Why? Because because now you're no longer a stranger here. You're putting a stake in the ground and say, I'm owning, I'm no longer just going to rent here. I'm going to own. I'm no longer just going to fulfill a lease contract and show up when I want and, and then just be a part of something cool. Now I actually get to make decisions. Now I actually get to equip people. Now I actually get to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I get to be home. Home. I invite all of you to do that if, if, when God calls you to. That is, means I'm no longer a foreigner of a room, no longer a foreigner. But when, when, when we say yes to Jesus... All of a sudden, there's these renewal moments in our life. The first and the most important one is, is that upon salvation, where we confess with our mouths that we're sinners, and we ask Jesus in our heart to forgive us, and we acknowledge what he did on the cross and that he conquered death, hell, and resurrection. That born-again experience is a renewed life. No longer am I part of the old nature. I've died to self. Now I'm new. Then there's the water baptism. There's the baptism of spirit. There's the baptism of fire that, that John the Baptist promised was coming. So all of these instances is encounters with God, knowing and, and tangibly feeling and experiencing his nature of reconciliation from my old man and bridging that, canceling that into my new man that I can be a new creature in Christ. It's amazing. 
It, it, listen, baptism doesn't itself get you saved, any one of them, in, in all of this. But what gets you saved is knowing that my heart is now connected to his heart, acknowledging what he did on the cross for me. That's salvation. Salvation is not in a works or a gift or, or me being able to speak in another language or prophesy. Those are gifts. Those are evidences that the Holy Spirit's actually living in you. But when I ask Jesus into my heart, the, the salvation message, when I, when I have that, all of a sudden now, now I get to live eternally with Jesus. The other things are renewals. They, they propel you forward into a greater experience or into, into a new life, a, a public confessed life, if you will. So, so these are the things, but, but what God is trying to say here is the church then fuels that. We breathe into that. If you want to get baptized in a few weeks, we are breathing into that. If you've never been baptized, you need to be. And, and, and why that is, is because the Bible says so. And Jesus himself was baptized. And you will be wowed at the experience that will happen upon your baptism. Let's, let's, let's move on here. I've got only a few minutes. I'm actually just going to read through a couple notes that I took that I was going to elaborate on. For the sake of time, I want to get to the final point. The Bible calls us his bride. God is actually the bridegroom. And, and the bride, the church, should actually look beautiful. Guys, how many in here married an ugly bride? Good. I'm so proud of you right now. <laughs> I am so proud of you. If any one of you had raised your hands, I may have to actually uh, practice the slapping I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Listen, God is returning for his bride, and he doesn't want to marry an ugly one. He doesn't want to marry one that's divided. He doesn't want to marry a bride that can't settle out differences just to love one another as they love God together. Like, like we have all these denominations, and, and I'll be honest, I, I don't ever get into a conversation with another pastor about disagreeing on doctrine. I refuse to do it. Because here's my deal. I love the different expressions of church. I love the different expressions and the different feelings. Looks, you and I, we don't listen to the same music, okay? At times, I, I switch. I have this wide range. But when I'm working out in the morning, it's either Lecrae or Demon Hunter. Anybody else like metal in here? Metal? Okay, how many hate metal in here? Okay, don't come in the gym at the Troy Fire Department around 6 a.m. Monday through Thursday, okay? But guess what? There is a church here for us, and, and for Nicole's grandpa who had cochlear implants, and like, it was chaos to him. He didn't have that one programmed into his uh, cochlear implants, upper room. <laughs> you can adjust them all and how the sounds work. So when he came here, but he loved me, he loved us, he loved what we had going on, and I love that he had the brother in church on Pleasant Hill that he raised a family and that he loved. Like, that's the thing. But, but here's the deal. Like, we are one body. The bride is supposed to be beautiful. It doesn't mean we agree. It doesn't mean, but I can agree on the major things with almost any denomination out there who is preaching the word of God, Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, and living eternally, returning for his bride. Like, those are the big C Christ Christian things that should be connecting us. But we get wrapped around the axle if, if they don't baptize the way we do or do communion as often as we do or, or they don't believe in healing and we believe in healing. It's like, yeah, God's going to work that out. Let's be a bride. Let's actually be attracted to our groom. How about that? How about, how about we look like a bride who's attracted to our groom, who adores our groom, who is in love with our groom, and who wants more time with our groom, just like a marriage should be. We're dependent on our groom. That's what the church should look like. A couple other things. is Josh talked about not gathering around a doctrine and that we have to agree on every single little thing. Now, the big things should line up. I'm just going to be honest with you. The big things should line up. And if they don't, then you need to find another home. Is that you? Did you text me? <laughs> but we should gather around family. We should gather around family where we're literally planting Jesus. We're hosting his presence. We're worshiping the same king of kings. And we're being manifested in his image. That's, that's who we are. Let me just carry on. Rick, Rick Pino says this, and I'm just going to kind of summarize what I feel upper room should be and, and what I would hope most churches, all churches should be. I was talking to him the other night, and, and we were talking, and he has this, his, his ministry is called Heart of David, and they have a slogan, and it's called a presence-driven, relationship-based worship network. A presence-driven, relationship-based worship network. James Foreman. (laughs) 
You notice I've never yelled at any one of you for being on your cell phones except my wife. But I never get bent out of shape when you leave your ringer on. Guilty. <laughs> All right. So here, here's what I want to just break down and, and summarize. And um, I won't need the band. We're good. We should be, every church, especially upper room, we should be pursuing his presence, hosting his presence, hosting his presence, being engaged with his presence. A house of prayer who's focusing on worship and is biblically sound. That's, that's what I really feel. Like those are, in my opinion, some of the four, uh, what I would call pillars of what a church structure should look like. A, a presence-driven house of prayer with a worship focus and it's biblically sound. We, if it's not in the Bible, we're not preaching it. If it is, we are. There's some, there's some things in between that I'm just not certain of. But guess what? I, I, I go back to the word, and is it confirmed in the word? Oh, dancing, partying, being drunk in the spirit, baptism. Yep, that's the Bible. Healing? Oh, healing for, oh, yes. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, we get to raise the dead. We get to see blind eyes healed, deaf ears healed. Like, we get to see that. Why? Because it's in the Word. So, so let me just finish here. Acts 2. Let's, let's land here. I got to land this plane. It's been circling long enough today. Acts 2, 42 through 47. All right? I'm going to whiz through that real quick. Just breeze through that. All the believers. This has been the theme of the series for the last few months. Occasionally we go back to this. All the believers devoted themselves. Now, now, let me paint the picture here. This was in a Holy Spirit-infused culture. This was in an encounter-driven. This was in a presence-filled culture. Then this happens. Let me, let me tell you what happened. Jesus, when, he, when, he, when the tomb was empty, and before he ascended, he, he returned, and he said to a couple of them, he says, go wait in the upper room. Because I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to pour it out. My Holy Spirit is going, going to give you peace and comfort. It's going to comfort you. It's going to guide you. All right? I'm going to pour out the power of my spirit. So he told several hundred people this. Only 120 showed up. But what did they show up based on? They showed up based on a promise from the Father. They showed up based on the promise from the Messiah to actually go wait, plant him in the middle, host his presence, and see what happened. They, wasn't, they, they, weren't, they weren't forming and, and, and having committees to figure out what series they were going to preach next. They didn't have a committee to figure out what program was going to be introduced next. They didn't have a committee figuring out what presentation and video is going to go with this message. They literally sat, waited with anticipation and expectancy. Then what happened was his spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. It was, it was violent winds, as strong as tornadoes and hurricanes, whipping through that place. They began to speak in other tongues. And then flames of fire rested on all of their heads. Where's that today in the church? Where's that today in the bride? And all of a sudden... What happened was it transformed them in such a way they were totally different and they were, they were transformed by the renewing of their mind and they thought different. They saw him different. Now this just isn't the Messiah and a teacher and a prophet and somebody who died. Now it's somebody who's pouring out gifts and power. It's somebody who's pouring out the gifts of the Spirit like, like prophecy and, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost with speaking in tongues and different languages that the enemy can't even understand. I'm going to challenge you. Maybe you've not been in a culture where this is going on. And, and I don't believe in chaos. I believe that, that the church should be a, a, a place of order. But I also read some of this. I'm like, yeah, that was just organized chaos. That was the order. And somebody asked me, like, you speak in tongues? You don't? Like, I came into this not believing in any of this. And all of a sudden, God showed up and, 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 and just empowered me with all this. And then I start reading my word. Like, okay, yeah, that is in the word. Oh, desire all the gifts? All, wait, all of them? That means I have access to all of them. This is what the promise was. So then what's happened is, it says, it, basically, the church looked and felt and was so impressive. It says 3,000 people were added to them that day. 
Verse 41, 3,000. What's that mean? That means that the church actually finally did and always will be relevant in that culture when we're doing it right in here. Why? Because 3,000 people from the outside wanted what was happening on the inside. That's what that meant because they were hosting his presence and open to what Jesus' promise was to pour out his spirit. Now, let me finish this. I'm so sorry for the sake of time. We'll, we'll get through it. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing of meals, breaking bread. We've talked about all this through the last several weeks. And if you've missed any of it, just go through our uh, media outlets. You can, you can hear or watch them all. And to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Who did? The people. The people performed this. The people performed the miracles and signs. Jesus was healing. It was everywhere. It doesn't say that in the church he did this. They just did it. They met in the house every day. They met in the tabernacle every day. And they did life. And they, the outsiders wanted inside. That meant the people were bringing it out. And it goes in to say, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Who, who sold and shared? The believers. Yep, the people. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes at the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. It should be so amazing. And we should have such a great culture here and such an infused, powerful, miracle, sign-working culture here that people out there want what we have in here People out there want more than what they can get at Applebee's. Come on. You can get good music and good food and get fed at Applebee's, but you can't encounter the presence of God unless somebody's there introducing you to Him. This should be that place that you can't get and be entertained. This entertainment doesn't last, but an encounter with His presence does. A program, a, a Super Bowl Sunday program doesn't last, but an encounter, if it leads people to an encounter with his presence, that lasts. That transforms my heart, which transforms my thinking and my mind. Let, let, me, let me just interpret where, where I'm at here. We, we talk about with our leadership, and we've mentioned it, we've planted the seed here a little bit. Up, in, and out. The Acts Church, through that scripture, demonstrates the up, the in, and the out. The up is our worship to the Father. The up is our encounters. The up is His presence. The up is, is our identity and knowing who we are because we've encountered whose we are. The end, that's the culture. That's the family. That's, that's the culture that's, that's getting into the truth. That's the culture that's, that's equipping the believers for the work of the ministry. The end is, is, is fueling healthy marriages. The end is, is fueling healthy families and parents to raise their kids in godly homes who will be attracted to godly people to marry. That's the end, making sure we have this culture to where, to where it's healthy. And when you come in here, when somebody comes in here, just because of the environment of the inn and hosting his presence in the up, people are literally transformed in the moment of just pulling in the parking lot, opening up that door, coming into the worship environment that's going on here. That's the inn. Now the out, that's what we're going to be focusing on in, in February. The out is what impression is all of this making out there? What is the impression of Nicole and I cultivating revival in our marriage, in our homes, in our kids, at the table, and all these things? What impression now is that making out there? And let me tell you, it's measurable. Revival is measurable when you reach the community. Why? Because unemployment rates plummet to the ground. Cancer diagnoses go down, and hospitals tend to go out of business. What happens when, when, when there's no need for some of these, these things that we're going, all right? The economy increases. That, that's, that's how you measure, is revival happening in our community? Is there still drug addiction? Is there still prostitution? Is there still these things? Is there still divorce in our area? Then revival truly hasn't hit all the way on a massive level out there yet. But I believe there's seeds of it happening there's transformation happening. There is a gauge that's going, and there's a pendulum that's swinging to revival being thrusted out into your workplaces, into your homes, into your cities, into your neighborhoods. So the out, I, let, me, let me finalize with two more things. JD, a good friend of mine who pastors in Chicago, he and I were on the phone 
talking at length, and we were talking about our declarations and our aspirations and goals for this year. And he said, Aaron, he had this comment to me, and I said, I'm stealing it. He said, Aaron, I want our church to be so impactful in our city. He's from uh, Oak Park, Illinois, inside Chicago there. Oak Park, he said, I want to be so impactful in our city, in our, in our area, that we would be missed if we were gone. I want to be so impactful from the people and from what we're doing and, and the people that are part of our church that if we, were, if we pulled out or if we, we didn't exist, we would be tragically missed. And I just say amen to that. That we are so impactful for what God is doing in us, through us, around us, in here, as a body, as a bride, like, like the, actually out there would miss us if we weren't here. I believe it's starting to happen over the last couple of years. There's been a, there's been a shift there. And, and, and it's amazing. So the last thing is, I already said it. We're good. Stand with me. How many love Jesus? Like, if you don't, I just want to invite you today to begin this journey. It is so simple. It is not by works that we're saved. It honestly boils down to a simple yes. A simple yes to what he did and who he is and what I used to be before him. It's, it's, it's really simple. And oh, I love the Lord. Okay. <laughs> I think every church should have heart. It might translate different. It might look different. I know some, some churches, and um, they may look dry and boring, but I know the pastors of those churches, and they have heart. And uh, then you got some that look really, really exciting and awesome. No heart. I, uh, I was talking to Jamie last weekend, and uh, he had a meeting with a good friend of his who, within about, I think he said four or five years, took a church from like eight people to 4,000 people. And uh, Jamie was saying, wow, you must be really excited. You must be, that must, that's, a, that's huge. God's really using you. And he said, Jamie... I would trade you in a heartbeat. I would trade you churches in a heartbeat because everything looks good, he said, but there's no heart. He said, it's, it's like a pretty outside box, but there's no deep, deep connection to the Lord in the middle. I want a church that looks glorious on the outside, not just polished. Glorious on the inside, not just polished on the outside. I don't want an empty tomb that looks great. I want life. Let's pray. Put your hands on your heart.